Thanks for tuning in to the Meadowview Weekly Sermon Podcast. We are a church who seeks to grow in Christ, gather in community, and go in obedience to the Great Commission. Amen. Christ is our treasure. Amen. All right. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab those. We're in Acts chapter 14. We're going to actually uh, do our best to finish out the first missionary journey of Paul and Barnabas. That's what I said two weeks ago, in case you remember that. We uh, jumped in and the power went out. So we made it through the first point. And so this, uh, this week, we're going to try to finish out the chapter 14 as we talk about perseverance in gospel proclamation. I do want to go ahead and thank you, church, for allowing me and my wife to be on vacation last week to get a refresher, to go catch a fish in the sea and play some golf and just really kind of uh, enjoy God's creation. And so I want to thank you for that. And uh, I want to thank Paul Davis, my buddy, for coming in and filling the pulpit. I pray that you were encouraged and strengthened by God's word last week. And uh, it is good to be home. I uh, will go ahead and be honest with you. It was a hard time finding a church while I was gone that, um, that I could faithfully say preaches God's word. So uh, it's good to be back uh, here with you. As we talk about perseverance and, pro- and proclaiming the gospel, Acts chapter 14, as, as we left off, Paul and Barnabas, they're on their first missionary journey, and they're going town by town, and they're beginning to face a lot of persecution and, and need perseverance. I was reading from the diary of John Wesley. I wasn't reading the whole thing, just a section. Don't think I'm that intellectual. And uh, just reading this little section, he said, Sunday a.m., May 5th, preached at St. Anne's, was asked not to come back anymore. Sunday p.m., May 5th, same day, preached at St. John's. Deacon said, get out and stay out. Sunday a.m., May 12th, preached at St. Jude's. Can't go back there either. Sunday a.m., May 19th, preached at St. Somebody Else's. Deacons called a special meeting and said, I could not return. Sunday p.m., May 19th, preached on the street, kicked off the street. Sunday a.m., May 26th, preached in a meadow. I feel, the, I feel that. That's what I do. Chased out of the meadow as a bull was turned loose during the service. Now, I'm just going to tell you, I'll take a power outage over a bull being released any day of the week. Sunday a.m., June 2nd, preached out on the edge of town. I was kicked off the highway. Sunday p.m., June 2nd, afternoon, preached in a pasture. 10,000 people came out to hear. Perseverance in proclaiming the gospel. As we get into Acts chapter 14, this is exactly what we're going to see in the life of Paul and Barnabas. It is frustration after frustration and ordeal after ordeal and obstacle after obstacle, but they are faithful to preach the good news of Jesus Christ. So as we jump into scripture this morning, let me pray for us that we would hear God's word and that he would speak to our hearts. Father, we do come to you. We thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the many who have come before us, who have faithfully preached your word so that we could sit in this room right now and that we could rightfully divide your word. Lord, we would pray that your Holy Spirit would lead and guide us towards all truth and that we would see your word as a light to our path. And Father, that we would be encouraged to fight the good fight of faith because you are our treasure. You are our prize. Father, I would pray right now for myself and for everyone else who can hear me that our hearts would be drawn to you and nothing else. Lord, we love you. We thank you for your word. It's in your name we pray. Amen. 
First thing I want to see is the gospel moves forward through perseverance in a polytheistic culture. Polytheism means the worship of many gods. We are monotheistic. We believe in one true God, God the Father, the Son, and Spirit, all in one being. And so as Paul gets to Lystra, as we get to verse 8 here uh, in Acts chapter 14, you're going to see that it is very much a polytheistic culture. They believe in multiple gods. So let's read. Now at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking and Paul looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well said in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted their voices, saying in Lyconian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was on the entrance of the city, brought an ox and garlands to the gate and wanted to offer sacrifices with the crowds. But when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea, and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witness. For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful season, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even when these words, they scarcely restrain the people from offering sacrifices to them. Let's stop there. This is God's word. Lystra is a very important city as we look at it. It's the city, it's the hometown of Timothy, and it's found in Galatia, the area of Galatia. So one of the, one of the, one of the churches that the letter of Galatia would have been written to would probably Lystra. And they are very much a polytheistic culture, as you can see from this section of Scripture. They're, worsh- they're worshiping Zeus and Hermes, and they're thinking all these different things are right, and they're following all these vain ways of worship. And normally, as Paul and Barnabas make their way into a city, they go to the synagogue, and they go, and they go to like-minded people, the Jews, and they say, all right, let me tell you the truth. Let me tell you the gospel as it is fulfilled in Scripture, and so let me give you Jesus Christ as the Messiah. But here they don't do that. Here they go into the public square because there probably was not a synagogue in that town. And so they go into the public square, and they begin to uh, preach and to heal. And before you know it, there's a large commotion that takes place. Because anytime we take the gospel into a public square of a polytheistic culture, it will incite persecution. And the reason I say that to you is because we may or may not realize it, but we live in a polytheistic culture. We live in a culture that worships many gods. We live in a culture that may not say that they're gods, may not even say that they're idols, but they have lived their life in such a way that they sacrifice, they worship, They put all their time and energy and resources into various things, and yet they claim to know God, but yet God sits on the back burner of their faith, and they pour their entire lives into different things that were created by God. Look at there again in verse 11. And when the crowd saw that Paul had what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus. Paul they called Hermes because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance of the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifices with the crowds. There's this moment of polytheistic worship that takes place. Now, they're speaking in Lyconian, so I'm assuming, this is me assuming along with several theologians, that 
Paul and Barnabas don't know what they're saying. You ever been in another country and they're just all talking amongst themselves and you're like, yeah, I don't know. I don't know what you're saying. So I imagine they're like, oh, there's a commotion. There's something happening. Maybe, maybe this is a good thing. And then when they realize what's happening, they tear their garments and they run out into the crowd. Hey, stop. What are you doing? We are men just like you. Do not do this. They were calling them Zeus and Hermes or, or uh, Jupiter or Mercury in Latin. These are the gods that they're worshiping. And the reason they're doing this is because there was an old Roman poet named Ovid who wrote a story about, an, about this area in Lystra. That the gods had come down, Zeus and Hermes had come down, and they had gone from, from house to house to this entire town, and no one would let them in. No one would welcome them. No one would receive them into their house until they finally got to this old couple's house. And they got to this old couple's house, And when when they got there, they invited them in, they gave them food, they gave them a bed to sleep in, and when they woke up the next morning, they turned that little house into a golden temple and gave them all kinds of gifts. And then they went back through the city, destroying every house that did not welcome them in. So you take this kind of culture with this kind of story, and they see these men do a a miraculous thing, and they're like, okay, well, that story's not going to happen again. Let's Let's kill an ox. Let's worship these people. Let's get this thing going. And the faith that they are proclaiming that there is a one true God becomes face-to-face with a polytheistic culture. The more public your faith becomes, the more persecution you will face. This is something we've said over and over and over again in the book of Acts. The more public your faith becomes, the more persecution you will face. Let me put it this way. The more we stand up in public and in the public square, for the living and true God, and the more we denounce pagan worship and sinful lifestyles, we will be targeted. We will be canceled. We will be attacked by the culture. If it was true in the very first churches that we find in the book of Acts, it will be true today. This is where Paul and Barnabas find themselves. This past few weeks ago this summer, uh, another pastor and myself, we decided to ride up together to Camp Cherokee to see our kids at camp. Uh, so we, we drove that long, windy dirt road up there. And as we're talking, he said, uh, you know, it's been a difficult summer. We're trying to figure out how to do ministry in a post-COVID world. And we decided to do a backyard Bible club in a local housing facility. And I was like, really? So you did like a, a BBS in the community? He's like, yeah. And you wouldn't believe what happened. I was like, what happened? He said, we got to the We got there, and we began to sit up, and we began to teach the kids about Christ. And this guy came out of the housing facility just berating us, cussing at us, yelling at us, trying to get us to get out of the the world, just get out of there. And he said, can you believe that our, our kids and our workers were being treated like that, just right down the road? The truth is, the more we take our faith into a public square, the more persecution we will face. R.C. Sproul and his... Commentary writes these words. We have the freedom of assembly in the United States. Is it because suddenly our country is more open to the proclamation of the gospel? Or is it because in a very real sense, the church militant has become the church impotent as we seek a safe way to experience our faith? In a sense, we've made a deal with the devil, is what he writes. We've agreed to practice our faith as it were on a reservation. That is, removed from the public square. We are told that as long as we keep our faith private and personal and do not intrude into the public arena, 
we will be able to exercise our First Amendment rights in the exercise of religion. If we agree to keep our religion private, then all the financial support we give to the church will remain tax deductible. We are forbidden by law to support the church in any political candidate based on the axiom of the separation of church and state. And he writes this, Yet there is not a single word about such separation of the Constitution of the United States or in the Declaration of Independence. That phrase found its origin in the private comments of Thomas Jefferson, who meant that no one denomination or religion should be established as the state church. In our day, separation of church and state has become to mean something of separation of the state from God. God is to have nothing to do with the secular affairs of the government, nothing could be further from the purposes upon which this country was founded. R.C. Sproul continues, We can argue indefinitely as to whether the founding fathers were Christians or deists. But one thing is certain. They embraced theism. They believed that the government was to be under God. It is the responsibility of the church to have a prophetic voice in the culture, to call sin, sin, wherever it emerges in the government or anywhere else in the public arena, end quote. R.C. Sproul wrote that many, many years ago. And that last part, it is the responsibility of the church to have a prophetic voice in the culture to call sin, sin, wherever it shows up. The church has bought into the lie that we need to be silent in the public arena that we need to gather in buildings, that we need to seclude ourselves from the culture, and yet the culture is giving us a polytheistic worship worldview. And the church is remaining more and more quiet. The early church, led by people like Paul and Barnabas, didn't believe that. They believed that as you preached the word of God, as you preached Jesus Christ, you stood into the public arena, and you declared sin as sin, and you declared that Jesus is the one in which everyone can be saved. Verse 14. But when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you and are bringing you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witness. For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. If you have your Bibles, let me encourage you to flip over to Romans chapter 1. As Paul talks about, man, you are not left without an excuse. You have, there's a reason you should know that there is a one and true living God because his goodness and his grace has been poured out on you, that you are without excuse, that you should be able to see that he gave you rain and he gave you fruitful seasons. He has poured out his grace and his goodness upon you so that you are without excuse. So turn from these vague things and worship the one and true living God. Pastor Tony Morita, he asked this question. I want you to ask yourself this question rhetorically, obviously. Are you aware of the goodness of God in your daily life? Are you aware of the goodness of God in your daily life? Every time you eat a good meal, relax in a comfortable chair after a long day's work, laugh with friends and family around the campfire, and listen to the sounds of the ocean, 
when you watch the sunrise, when you breathe in fresh air, you are experiencing the kindness of God. Signs of God's goodness are all witnesses of his existence, his wisdom, and his benevolence. Creation itself is preaching an ongoing sermon. Are you aware of the goodness of God in your daily life? As we look at Romans chapter 1, we quickly see five things. And so if you're taking notes, you might want to write these down. These are like subpoints to the first point, but Verses 18 through 32, we learn, number one, people who have never heard special revelation, which is the gospel, need to be told about Christ because general revelation isn't enough for salvation. We learn that, number one, those who have seen and witnessed general revelation still need to be told special revelation, the gospel, because general revelation is not enough for salvation. Verse 18 through 20. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. Without excuse. People who have never heard of special revelation, the gospel of Jesus Christ, need to be told about Christ because general revelation is not enough for salvation. There is only one name by which men can be saved, Jesus Christ. All those who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Acts 4.12, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus Christ must be proclaimed in the public square, even if it cost us persecution in a polytheistic culture. <sighs> Number two, people who suppress the truth will live lives that are marked with spiritual darkness futile thinking, and idol worship. We're without excuse. We have a general revelation, but those who suppress the truth will live lives that are marked with spiritual darkness, futile thinking, and idol worship. And the reason why is because sin problems are worship problems. Sin problems are worship problems. There's a reason why we see in a culture of polytheistic nature that there's all kinds of sin problems happening because there's all kinds of worship happening that is not directed towards the one and true living God. There's a lot of self-worship. There's a lot of cultural worship. There's a lot of sin worship. There's a lot of worship happening, and it's creating a whole lot of sin problems in our culture. Let's keep reading there in verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. People who suppress the truth will live lives that are marked with spiritual darkness, futile thinking, and idol worship. All humans are worshipers. It's not a matter or a question of Will you worship? It's who do you worship? Or whom do you worship? Or what do you worship? Spiritual darkness and futile thinking leads to an idolatry that looks for something other than God to give you what only God can give you. Futile thinking is thinking that there are things that are created that can fulfill the void that is in your heart and soul that only God can fill. And we look at a culture and we see, I turn from these vain things. You are following after idols and lesser gods that you think can satisfy you that can't. Turn to the one and true living God. 
Our world may claim to know God, but at the same time, it is in the practice of polytheistic worship. There are many who say they know God. There are many who claim that they know God. I was raised in church. I know God. I, I went to vacation Bible school. I saw the felt board. I, I got it. I know all those things. And yet you look at life and you look at what they go after and you look at what they strive toward, what they worship, what they sacrifice for. It is a litany of just different things that you're trying to find satisfaction in something that that's futile thinking. That's idol worship. It's spiritual darkness. Idol worship is looking for things to give you joy, security, freedom, satisfaction, fulfillment, love, and acceptance in a created person, possession, or pattern of living that cannot fill the void in your heart. Third thing we see in these sections of Scripture is God's judgment is fair and the consequences of sin are appropriate. That's difficult. God's judgment is fair and the consequences of sin are appropriate. Verses 24 through 27. Therefore God gave them up to the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever, amen? For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those who were contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty of their error. God's judgment is fair and the consequences are appropriate. One day, there will be a final judgment. One day, God's judgment upon sin will be fulfilled. And as of right now, God is giving a foretaste of judgment. He's giving a foretaste by literally handing people over to sin. Sin always leads to misery and unfulfillment. Yet it promises the opposite. Sin always leads to misery and unfulfillment, yet it promises the opposite. Am, am I right? How many of us in here have bought into a lie that this will satisfy me? We know it goes against God's word, and we ended up eating the consequences of it. Four of us, that's good. All right. There are times where we believe this is what I need. This is what's going to fulfill me. This is what's going to satisfy me. And it's a polytheistic worshiping culture that we bought into that allows us to believe such a thing. And God says, you really, you want to taste, you want to taste some judgment? Let me show you how unfulfilling sin is. Go ahead and participate in that and you follow the consequences of it. This is the culture in which Paul and Barnabas have entered in and they are telling people, listen, God will deliver you over. And this, this language, this language, he gave them up. He gave them up. This is the same language as what he did with Israel when they continued to worship the Baals. As we've been reading in our, in our uh, summer reading plan, we've gotten into the point where you see Israel and Judah and they're continually doing what's evil in the eyes of the Lord. And finally, he's going to be like, I'm going to hand you over to your enemy. Here's what, here's what the judgment of, of God is and the consequences. 
I'm going to hand you over to sin. And you're not going to be fulfilled. It will separate you from me. And you will feel the, the small judgment here that one day will be an eternal judgment. This is what God's word says. Fourthly, last thing, 28 through 32. Corrupt minds lead to social disorders and deceived people. So let's go all the way back to the beginning. You've got no excuse. God has revealed himself in creation. There's a special revelation. If you suppress the special revelation, believe you want to go in your own way, you will live in a futile thinking with idol worship, and then God will hand you over to that. And when he hands you over to that, that has consequences that then lead into social disorders and deceived people. Is this not like just laying out the mail for the culture today? Sin is never private because our sin seeks approval from the public. Sin is never private because it seeks approval from the public. Verse 28, And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. This is a polytheistic culture. A polytheistic culture who worships the things that are created and distort creation to worship it, to try to find fulfillment, acceptance, and love, end up approving of people's sins in order to lessen the consequences and the guilt of their sin. When your conscience is killing you, when you know that you're participating in things that go against the righteous decree of God's word, you're tempted to either justify your actions or suppress those actions. And if you're simply suppressing it, it'll finally pour out into another area of your life. Or to justify it, you will enlist approval from others to feel justified. We've gotten to a point in culture where we're monotheistic, yet we applaud the worship of polytheism in order to make our sin not as severe as their sin, because if their sin's okay, then my sin's really okay. Am I right? This is where we are in a culture that needs to hear truth, that needs to have our faith taken into the public square where we stand on the word of God and we make no apologies for it. And the reason I say this is because if you take all of this together, you take all these scriptures, it's easy for us to point fingers. But we all have sin. We have all fallen short of the glory of God. And apart from his grace and his mercy, in his love, we would not be sitting here in this very moment. Am I right? So we should plead with people. Don't do these things. Turn to the living God who can satisfy. Teach them about Jesus Christ. Teach them about his grace and his mercy that he took our place on the cross so that we could have forgiveness of sin so that when God looks at the wrath of sinful man, he looks over us because we're covered in his blood. 
Sin is always there. It's always there to trip us up. It's always there being put in our face. It's always there trying to find approval from the culture and acceptance from us. It's always going to be the battleground of the soul. This is why every believer, every single one of us needs to be shown grace. Every single one of us needs to be supported with prayer. Every single one of us needs a community of faith around us to help us fight against sin because it is in our face as soon as we walk out these doors. We need help fighting the sin of idolatry in a polytheistic culture. Therefore, we need God's grace and we need each other. Second point. The gospel moves forward through perseverance in painful sacrifice. Painful sacrifice, verses 19 and 20. But Jews came from Antioch to Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city, and on the next day he went with Barnabas to Derbe. Wow. When you preach in the public square, there will be persecution. And for Paul, he was stoned, dragged out of the city, and left for dead. The truth is, there's no missions without sacrifice. There's no such thing as missions without sacrifice. Sometimes painful sacrifice. We simply cannot reach people with the good news of Jesus Christ without giving up, giving up something in the process. We'll give up time, energy, Money, resources, popularity, friends, promotions, and sometimes personal safety because Jesus Christ is worthy to be preached in the public. Personal sacrifice, in fact, is a prerequisite of proclaiming the gospel. This is why Jesus said in Luke 14, 33, So therefore, any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. You know, Jesus didn't go around asking people if they want to be Christians. Never once. Hey, do you want to be a Christian? Just do these things. Hey, do you want to be a Christian? Hey, why don't you repeat this prayer after me? Do you want to be a Christian? Why don't you walk this out? Do you want to be a Christian? No, he didn't say that. No, he said, will you follow me? Will you be a disciple? Will you sacrifice? Because it'll cost you everything. In fact, being a disciple is very different than being a Christian. And the reason is, is because the biblical definition of being a disciple is this, denying self, taking up your cross, and following Jesus. Let me ask you, are you a disciple? Are you a disciple? Is your life characterized by denying self, picking up your cross, and following Jesus into the public square? This is what it means to be a disciple. Verse 19, again, but the Jews came from Antioch and Iconium. What is happening here is these previous towns that Paul has been in, mobs are beginning to form. These mobs are then beginning to join up with other mobs and say, we're going after this guy. And when they finally get there and they finally get to Lystra, they stone Paul, not recreationally, but they stone Paul and they drag him out of the city. I threw that in there for you, wake you up. Here's the deal. The early church was led by men like Paul and Barnabas. Men. 
men who stood up in protest against polytheism, who stood up against a culture of idolatry, promiscuity, and pagan sacrifices. The church was marked by men who believed that evangelism and the Great Commission was the battleground for people's souls and they were willing to engage. Are you willing to engage? Albert Muller says this, Christians might and indeed have attempt to rescue society through social, political movement. While we must never demean the importance of elections or diminish the responsible stewardship Christians have to vote, we also dare not believe political victory will secure ultimate and lasting peace. Rescue will not come by mere politics. We do not need a political movement. I love this. We need a theological protest. We need a church that says, no, it's not what God's word says. And we're willing to painfully sacrifice to say it. In 2 Corinthians, Paul writes about this event. In fact, he writes about a lot of painful sacrifice that he went through to proclaim the gospel. In 2 Corinthians 11, 24 through 28, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was at drift at sea, on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, dangers from robbers, danger from my own people, dangers from Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger in false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and in thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is a daily pressure on me for the anxiety for all the churches." It advanced through painful sacrifice. Why on earth would Paul put himself in harm's way? Why on earth would Paul live a life like this of being a disciple? Why on earth would Paul or anyone else put themselves in situations that could bring bodily harm? Why on earth would Paul live with missional perseverance? Let me tell you why. Simple. Paul cared more about the salvation and sanctification of people than he did his own well-being. Paul cared more about the salvation and sanctification of people than he did his own well-being. That's hard. I mean, honestly, like we can say amen to that. We could be like, yeah, that's right. But to walk out and care more about people's salvation than our own comfort that goes against everything this culture teaches us. That goes against everything that we're, we're watching and listening to. To care more about people's salvation than we do our own personal well-being goes against everything that we've been taught growing up. But it, it aligns directly with what Christ says in the Gospels. You want to follow me? You've got to give up everything. Maybe this morning you, you've heard these words and you, you say, I've, look, I've called myself a Christian for years. But if you would ask me to define my life as a disciple of Jesus, I don't know if I can biblically do it. Then I would say before you leave today that you would call out on the one and true and living God and repent of your sin and throw yourself on the altar of his grace and ask him to save you. And he will make you a disciple. 
final thing is this. The gospel moves forward through perseverance and practicing churches. Practicing churches, verse 21 through 28. When they had preached the gospel to that city and then made many disciples, they returned to Lystra. They returned back into Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. When they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. And they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word in Persia, they went down to Italia. And from there, they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained a little time with the disciples. This is missions. Paul and Barnabas could have easily just plowed a new track all the way down from modern-day Turkey where they were back to Antioch where they began. But instead, they backtracked. They went through every city that had created mobs that wanted to stone him. They had gone from city to city. And what were they doing? They were going to strengthen the disciples. They were going to establish churches to raise up elders for proper church leadership. They were doing these things so that the church could practice and function correctly so that they could combat a polytheistic culture. This is missions, preaching and establishing churches and encouraging those who live there to carry on the ministry. That's ministry. That's, that's missions. Over and over, the Bible stresses the importance of a local body of believers gathering together under the proper leadership in a proper fellowship for proper ministry practice. I am thankful to say that we are in a church that is elder-led, that there are godly men that I sit around, that I hear pray for you, that love the Lord deeply. I'm thankful for that. That is a good and gracious gift, not only to me, but also to you, that there is a church that is seeking to practice our faith properly and that we can stand in the face of opposition and persecution in a polytheistic culture. That is missions. Why did they go back through and establish churches and encourage people? Here's the reason. Because we are to gather as the church. We are to gather as the church. There's no, no way in Scripture you can get around that. And the reason we gather as the church is so we can grow as the church. We gather as the church so we can grow as the church. And the reason we grow is so that we can be equipped to be sent out to further his church. There's a reason you're here today. You're here today to gather as the church, to grow as the church, so that as we end here in just a minute, you can be equipped to further his church. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for men like Paul and Barnabas. We thank you for their example of faith. We thank you for their example of perseverance in spite of persecution. And God, we would ask that you would fill us with your spirit with such a deep love for you, that we have such a deep love for those who don't know you, that we would boldly proclaim you, even if it means painful sacrifice, that we would stand up for what is true in a culture and in a world 
that says that they know you, but worship all kinds of other things. Father, right now, if there's some of us in here who have bought into worshiping people or things or possessions, God, that we would repent now, that we would fall on our face before you. We would ask for forgiveness of replacing you with things that we know cannot fulfill. Father, if there's any of us in here who have been living a life of sin, living a life of accepted sin, even in our life or in others, Lord, that we would repent of that. Mostly, God, if there's someone here who needs to make sure today that they have given their entire heart and life to you, that they would do it today. They would call out for the name of Jesus Christ to save them. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Will you stand? Will you respond? Thanks for listening. It is our prayer that this message has helped you grow in your walk with Christ. Go to our website, meadowviewbaptist.com, or subscribe to hear more sermons like this, or to get more information about how to be involved at Meadowview Baptist.